The resurrection of the crucified Jesus brings transformation, a truth we celebrate every Sunday. But then Monday arrives with its unrelenting demands and distractions. In view of this perennial challenge, we invite you to join us for the day after Sunday, a weekly discussion between a preacher, Chris Costaldo, and a music guy, Greg Wheatley, on the implication of Christ's kingdom for everyday life. Well, Greg Wheatley, we're here together again. We are. It seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? (laughs) It has been at least a month. You know, Chris, I am sure the tens of thousands of people out there who have been clamoring for a new podcast from Mm -hmm. us uh, we're sorely disappointed, don't you think? We should probably offer an explanation. Probably should, yeah. Well, it's real simple. Our computer gave up the ghost. And when you're a small church, you have to shop for a new computer and then set it up. Well, all of that has been done, and we're back online again. Yeah, thanks to some people around here who know tech better than either you or I do. Right? Thank God for them. Yeah, one of them is your son sitting right here to our right. That's and right. Mr. Bob Ohms, who uh, kind of dug into things. So yes, here we are. Yes. They're taking care of us. Bravo. Yeah. Good work, yeah. man. Well, so following Easter, I had an idea. I wanted us to talk about uh, two topics, one being evangelism. Christ is uh, king. The new age has begun, and we are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, and with Pentecost coming, that seems like an appropriate subject. Mm-hmm. The other one is related, and it's ecumenism a word that is often misunderstood, I think, but has to do with the way we manifest the unity of the church. Mm -hmm. And given some experiences I have had this past week, I thought we would talk about that today. So let me ask you a question to get us started. Uh, What comes to your mind when you hear that word, ecumenism? Well, actually, interesting, Chris, because just as you were saying the word, I was thinking back to earlier days, and I'm, I'm somewhat older than you, so probably have a little more history of this, was kind of a, kind of a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so one of the first associations I have as a conservative evangelical is that that word always conjured up sort of a, um, oh, maybe diluting of the gospel, um, watering down, kind it's, of common denominator. Yeah, shorthand for theological compromise. Yeah. It's a zero-sum game. Either you're going to tell the truth or you're going to fudge. Yeah. And ecumenism is the way you fudge. Yeah. And again, to be clear, that's we're talking about associations. We're not saying that's right. what we think. <laughs> that's right. No. But yeah, <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of that there. I think in more recent days, um, I've come to a more nuanced understanding where I think I would see it as an attempt to recapture what Jesus called for Mm -hmm. um, in John 17, especially where he talks about um, asking the Father that all of his followers would be one. And so I kind of hear those those echoes in that, too. That's an important touchstone. John 17, our Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer, and asks just that, that his followers would be one, just as he and the Father are one, that the world may see and believe. So there is a a dimension of this that that reaches out to the world, uh, particularly in this contemporary moment that is so factious, so partisan. Um, How striking is it to see a community of people manifesting genuine love for one another? Mm And amidst differences. So the other thing I've always sort of thought about when it comes to ecumenical issues is that um, there's some sense in which, though we are to be one in Christ, it doesn't erase all of our more surface differences. Right. So in other words, another way to say, we're not cookie-cutter people, right? Right. I don't have to agree with you on every issue of life in order to find unity with you 
in Christ. Right? Yeah, unity yeah. is not uniformity. Right. It's cultic if it's completely uniform. Yeah. Everyone Robotic. thinks the same yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dresses yeah. the same way. Yeah. That's creepy. <laughs> but we're talking about a heartbeat that is shared between people, people from different tribes and tongues and nations, and people who have different beliefs to some extent. Now, that's mm-hmm. where it gets interesting. Right, exactly. So how do we define what those core beliefs are that uh, we can't move on, and how do we let other things go and say, okay, I respect your choice to disagree with me about yeah. that. Yeah, so that's where I find the creeds particularly helpful. Apostles, Nicene, and Chalcedonian Creed, the central articulation of what we believe concerning the triune God and the work of Christ and who we are as his people. Uh, that will distinguish genuinely Christian groups from those that are not, namely Jehovah Witness, Mormon, you know, people who would repudiate the Trinity and the work of Christ. Sort of what uh, Lewis called mere Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Those sort of things, those core doctrines that um, to lose them means to lose being Christian. That's right. That's so the, right. The, but as you've alluded, the, the problem is defining what those are because for one person, that core extends way out into some things that you or I might say, well, those are peripheral. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a sliding line in a lot of people's minds, isn't it? Yeah, I once heard someone say that these kinds of conversations between a conservative and a, and a liberal or progressive who both identify with Christianity are asymmetrical, meaning the person to your left always looks irresponsible and the person to your right always looks overly narrow. Mm-hmm. So you think, for instance, of Martin Luther and Zwingli at uh, Marburg. 1529. Uh, they're talking about communion, Lord's Supper. And uh, Luther asserts, uh, Jesus said, this is my body. It, it actually truly is. Zwingli prefers to see it as more of a, of a symbol. Mm-hmm. So in that case, Luther's to the right, Zwingli's to the left. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what happened, right? Uh, Zwingli sort of looked at Luther and said, why must we get hung up on this detail? Well, why are you being so narrow? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We need to unify. Yeah. The Catholic Church is against us, and we're um, at this point a minority, so forth. Um, and Luther says <laughs> to, to Zwingli, um, you have a different spirit than what we have mm. who hold this belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's part of the challenge is, rec- just as you said, recognizing what is genuinely central to the faith. Don't you think, Chris, too, sometimes it's um, it's semantics and definition. So um, I, I think it's important. That's why it's important to dialogue about this, I would think. Um, there's an issue now. I'm thinking right now of this thing we call inerrancy of the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I am theologically ignorant enough to have just an idea of what that means. But I don't know all the nuances. So if I'm debating with someone and we disagree on, quote, the inerrancy of Scripture, one of the first problems in my mind is, are we saying the same thing? Mm -hmm. So if I don't understand your terms, I may be be relegating you to um, heresy Yes. Needlessly, because we're you're really not saying what I'm assuming you're saying. Yeah, it's important to define our terms. Yeah. What are we trying to safeguard? What are we going after? Inerrancy is a perfect example. Uh, we're interested in verbal plenary inerrancy that God intended for particular words to be written down, and indeed they were in the original autographs. Uh, and a person may come down on one side of that debate not having thought through those details. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely why ecumenical discussion is important, so that we yeah. can understand one another. Yeah. So I'll take a swing at what I mean by 
inerrancy, having thought about this as I was driving here. I, I would say it is essentially uh, a conversation between uh, individuals in the Christian tradition intended to bring both parties closer to Christ. Hmm. Uh, I think that's what we're aiming for. Let me stop you just a second, because yeah. you said inerrancy. I think you meant ecumenism. Did right. I say inerrancy? You did. That's okay. That's <laughs> all right. Say, I'm just here to help. Which is really different from inerrancy. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get to inerrancy, and you said, <laughs> yeah, so, so you'll take a stab at ecumenism, right? Right, yeah. right. Okay, now. Because they both have three syllables. <laughs> it's so easy to get those words mixed up. <laughs> so let me say it again. Ecumenism is when uh, individuals who identify with the Christian tradition come together and they dialogue with a view to drawing both of them drawing closer to Jesus in terms of their understanding in their apprehension of the the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me is helpful in identifying what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, have, I have said this before, and I think you and I have talked about this. Um, to me, it's always been sort of a, a fantasy of mine or a dream to think about people, let's say Catholic and Protestant, because I know you've had a lot of, you, you've thought a lot about this. Um, to sit down at a table and say, here are the ground rules for our next hour of our discussion. Mm-hmm. We're going to put anything goes on the table. We can talk about any doctrine. But the ground rule is, rather than me telling you what you believe as a Catholic, I'm going to ask you yeah. what you believe. Mm-hmm. And then when you tell me, I'm going to repeat it back, and you tell me if I understood you right. And then at the end of the hour, the second ground rule is, we're going to be friends, we're going to love each other, <laughs> But we aren't going to aim to agree on everything. To me, that seems really productive to have that kind of discussion. Yes. So an important uh, passage of Scripture that guides us in that, to my thinking, is John 1.14, where our Lord Jesus is said to have come full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. So we want to understand truth. How do we do it? I think you nailed it. We, We ask honest questions and we listen as humble listeners and learners. And we apply grace so that we're concerned about the relationship uh, upholding the dignity of that other person. And with John 17 in view, hopefully manifesting something of that loving unity that Christ provides. Yeah, because so often, and it could be any topic, politics, you, you know, could happen there too. I think part of our issue is we come to people and we assume what they believe, mm-hmm. and then we just start in on them based on that yes, and tell them how wrong they are, <laughs> Yes, rather than saying first, okay, maybe I don't understand you right. Let me make sure. Is this what you mean by fill in the blank? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you've opened the, uh, you've opened the dialogue. Right? And that is assuming something there, isn't it? It's assuming that we are engaging one another as friends and yeah. having conversation. And I'm afraid very often we're not. You know, it's a little like politics, again, where, oh, there's a Catholic friend. I know we disagree on things, so I won't go there. Right. Otherwise, right. it might turn into It'll an argument. Yeah. Well, what I want to do as a pastor is provide tools by which our people can have that conversation in a way that reflects the grace and truth balance. Yeah. I'm afraid we don't have too many good models of that. Mm-hmm. So let's get real practical here for a minute. Um, you're a pastor and a former Catholic and one who has done a lot of thinking about this ecumenism thing. Um, what are some of the practical outcomes? I mean, to be to be real, to be realistic about this and not assume some pie in the sky, we're all just going to, as they like to say, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Um, 
What are, what are the realities? What should we be hoping for in terms of ecumenism? So, okay, let me give you a few examples from this past week of ecumenical exchanges. I think that will answer your question, and I hope it will also illustrate the, the various forms that ecumenism takes. Um, the first one happened the other evening when my children were at a, a greenhouse performance. I was uh, killing time with the little ones, my three-year-old and seven-year-old, at the park. So there I am and get to chat with this nice lady who I eventually identifies as a devout and conservative Catholic. It was fascinating learning about her experience, why she goes to the Latin Mass. And eventually we started talking about family discipleship because we both have teenage children. What does it look like to proactively disciple them? Okay, I'm suggesting that was an ecumenical exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, next one happened up at Mundelein Seminary. I was there yesterday, largest Catholic seminary in the country. Uh, Matthew Levering convened about 35 or so scholars from various places. I was the pastor in the room, and we were talking about mysticism. Um, uh, Bernard McGinn has written a very important book on that subject in the Protestant tradition. And it it was enlightening. It it was um, informative on all sorts of levels, and it was ecumenical. Third and and final one happened later on yesterday when I went to St. Patrick's to visit dear Shirley Anderson, who's there. And uh, this this particular facility is managed by the Carmelite Sisters. So as I'm uh, arriving, I get to talking with this nun who's in the full garb. She's got the habit on and everything. And conversation turns toward the preciousness of serving the elderly. What a wonderful ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, I came away thinking, ah, yet another ecumenical exchange. Mm-hmm. So I think to your question then, what are we aiming for? We want to learn. We want to grasp more deeply what it means to be servants of Christ. And I think each of these conversations realize that to some extent. Let me ask you what is probably kind of a tough question. Um, Do you foresee any time in the future where there might be something analogous to the Reformation happen that would be so sweeping and so powerful that there would be a new almost a new union built where there would be believing Catholics and Protestants that would no longer be divided yeah. by the Catholic-Protestant label. I, I don't yeah. know if you get what I'm yeah, driving Yeah, no, no, at. I hear what you're saying, because there's some signs of that, right? That kind of movement mm-hmm. today, yeah. and you and I know some people who are in the vanguard of that movement. Um, so, as it's been said, to, to see the future, we need to look to the past. Mm-hmm. And I look to the decades following the Reformation. It's very illustrative in the sense. You had a lot of ecumenical engagement, actually. That story isn't often told. But you have early Jesuits who are very ironic and amiable toward Lutherans. Let's listen. Let's see what we can sort of understand together. Uh, you, you have these um, ecumenical diets like uh, Regensburg, Contarini and company. Okay. So that was happening, but at the same time, you had this polemical face-off that occurred and, and culminated in, in the Council of Trent. Yep. I think we live in the same moment. I think you and I can point to movements today and say, that's really quite lovely, mm-hmm. because these people are principled, they have integrity, they're not so open-minded that their brains are falling out of their heads, and yet, uh, and that's good, and they're engaging one another in love. Um, and then there are other movements that I, I'm afraid are rabidly polemical mm-hmm. and fall short of the John 17 witness to which we're called. Yeah. I know that I grew up in a time where, um, I mean, it, 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 I, I recall, I had a little friend down the street from me 
whose family was Catholic. And I just remember, I don't remember if it was ever said to me overtly, but I remember growing up with the sense that, no, they're other uh, than yeah. you. And there was a sense of, um, I hope we're moving out of that. I hope we have moved out of that um, while still maintaining the principled approach to what we believe really truly is important. So let me ask you a question then. Having just come through the commemoration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, there were a lot of conferences and books and blog posts and podcasts. I'm curious what you observed mm. uh, in view of these principles. Mm. Did, did you see any particular balance of one over the other? You know, honestly, I'm not sure that I plugged into enough of that to give a good answer. Um, I thought you were going to ask me what my hopes were. <laughs> okay. Um, but so Let's can I go that. with the, can Please. I take that one? Yes. Can I take the question you should have asked me? <laughs> um, this is like getting an exam in school and writing on something totally different yes. right? and hoping you fly it by your teacher. Um, I would hope that there would come a day where um, – Catholics and Protestants, and this is why I asked if there might be a new label, mm-hmm. you know, the confessing church or something like that, you know, where there would be an ability to say, we so agree on the centrality of Jesus and his atonement that um, we can agree to disagree on some of these other things. And again, we're back to what what counts as peripheral and what really cannot be jettisoned. Yes. But there's, I just, I would hope there would come a day where, and that's why I asked if it might take a real work of God's Spirit to do that. Yeah. So that on both sides there was significant reformation um, to bring us to that point. I think from a Protestant point of view, it would require the Catholic Church to change significantly in its understanding of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, sola scriptura, scripture alone, doesn't mean that we don't have tradition uh, or, or that tradition is without authority. We believe it, it has that, uh, but we insist that scripture is the supreme authority. Uh, it's, it's the norm that mm-hmm. man, you know, modifies, mm-hmm. governs all other norms. And uh, secondly, we also would need to see the Catholic Church re-articulate its thoughts on justification, We've come closer, but there's still... I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in recent years, there's been a document or two, right, that purport to have addressed that? The chief one being the Joint Declaration. I I think it's enlightening around some parts of the issue that is justification, but when you boil it down, the fundamental difference between Catholics and Protestants, namely, um, why does God accept us, is still different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Protestants, in the Reformed tradition at least, continue to assert it is the attribution of Christ's righteousness, right. imputation. Right. And for the Catholic, it is actually being made righteous from infused within, infused right. yeah. through yeah. the sacraments. So, um, you know, there's there's been good conversation around that, but I think uh, people who are honest are going to recognize that we continue to see it differently. What do you think the Catholic would say to that question? What would they say, well, the Protestants would need to do this? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's a very (laughs) fair question. Yeah, I think from a Catholic point of view, when they hear language of faith alone, very often it sounds like fire insurance, cheap Mm. grace, as Bonhoeffer put it. Uh, you mean all you have to do is say a prayer and yeah. believe, and that's now it? Now you can do whatever you want. Without, yeah, a reference to the life of holiness that follows, you know? So I think we, uh, 
have to give an answer for the sanctification hope within. I don't think we've always done a good job at that. Mm-hmm. Even today, I'm going to be a little controversial now. I <laughs> I hear people say that we're saved by faith alone. Well, actually, we're not. We're justified by faith alone, but salvation is bigger. It, it entails sanctification, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we need to say more about that than simply have faith. Um, yeah. That's really not controversial, but I'm afraid it's so axiomatic yeah. to use the language of, of sola fide, of salvation. And look, here's my point. We evangelicals who define ourselves by this gospel should be more precise mm-hmm. in the way we speak to that issue. Yeah. Great conversation. Wow. We've, we've kind of treaded into some deep waters, too, haven't we? Yeah, we have. So maybe we'll get mail or email Here, or something. Brace we, yourself. The, yeah. The tidal wave is coming. Yeah. I, and I, I hope people will respond, you know, if they uh, post something about this and start a conversation. That'd be great. Love to love to hear. We could have an ecumenical discussion. We could do that. And <laughs> since this is cyber, there's no danger of, you know, no. getting in trouble or anything. We could just say whatever we want, can't we? <laughs> Maybe not quite. Hey, we should also, Chris, invite people to New Covenant uh, in so they can uh, come here in the flesh and worship with us. We'd love that, wouldn't we? We would love to meet you. We gather at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, and we're located at an enormous intersection in the middle of Naperville. It's a scary intersection. It is. Be careful. It's so big. Yeah, that's right. Uh, don't be texting through that intersection. Uh, South Washington and 75th Street are the crossroads. You'll see us there, a tall steeple building. Building. Please come uh, and worship with us and be sure to introduce yourself. Thank you for joining us for the day after Sunday. We'd love to have you worship with us at New Covenant Church this Sunday morning at 10.30 at the corner of South Washington and 75th Street in Naperville. And please join us next week for the day after Sunday.